The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. And it's found in the book of Exodus. We'll be reading from chapter 13, Exodus chapter 13 and verse 17 all the way until chapter 14, verse 31. This is page 55, or it begins on page 55 if you're using the Pew Bible. Exodus chapter 13, and beginning in verse 17. Let's all give careful attention to this, the public reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 13, beginning in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirath, between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot, and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots, and all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped by the sea by Pi-Hahirath in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. 
The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And then in the morning watched the Lord In the pillar of the fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Amen. As far the reading of God's word, let's look to the Lord and pray in prayer. Lord, we do look to you asking that you would come to us and open up our eyes, O Lord, that we might behold wondrous things from your law. Grant, O Lord, that we might see that great salvation which you have worked for us, that we might come more and more deeply to see what a glorious God you are this evening. And that we might then walk before you more faithfully as we are built up and strengthened in the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask for these things in his name. Amen. Well, off they were on their way to the promised land. But as we see the journey beginning, one question that's kind of taken up is, which way will they go? What route will they take? You know, they hadn't quite reached the days where they all had GPS apps on their smartphones, right? They couldn't just... Say, say, Siri, directions to the promised land. But if they had had that ability, well, the directions they would have been given would not have been the ones that they ended up 
taking. Uh, clearly, this wasn't the, the recommended fastest route. Our text tells us that the shortest route, that which was near, as it says in 317, would have been through the land of the Philistines. Look on the map. It would have been a simple just, just head east, and it's a direct shot straight along the Mediterranean Sea. But no, we see that the Lord directed them into the wilderness, straight in the direction of the Red Sea. Why was this? Was this in order to avoid military conflict, as, as many commentators suggest? That may be the case, but note at the end of, of verse 18 that they went out of Egypt, it says, equipped for battle. Now, that, that language there is ambiguous in the Hebrew, and so it's sometimes translated differently. I, I think there's no reason not to take it the way the ESV translates it here. And, and note in 317 that the issue there is, is not so much that they would face a military threat. At some point, they would be called upon to fight. The real issue here is how would they respond to a military threat? How would they respond to the sight of danger? At first sight of danger, would they run away in fear? Would they run back to Egypt? And you see, the Lord's purpose here was to teach them not to fear, but to trust. Note that all-important message in our text this evening. God was, was teaching his people, calling them not to fear, but to trust we don't see the, the, the word fear mentioned in the beginning there in 317 and, and so forth, but clearly I think that seems to be the stated reason for which God chose the particular route that he chose for them. But as you, you move along into chapter 14, we see in, in verse 10, how was it that the, the people responded when, the, when they saw that the Egyptians were pursuing them? It says that they feared greatly. They feared greatly, and what were they told? Moses tells them in, in verse 13, when he gives them that command, Fear not, fear not. And then what do we see at the conclusion of our text as you jump all the way to to 1431? After the Lord had saved them, we see that no longer were they fearing the Egyptians, but now they were fearing the Lord, fearing the Lord and believing him, trusting the Lord. Our message this evening is this. As the Lord guides his people unto their inheritance, he brings them from fear unto faith. He brings them from being afraid to the place where they are trusting him, their Lord. This Red Sea event is obviously just huge in the scripture, all uh, encompassing, so important, so much we could consider that we'll, we'll take two weeks to cover it. This week we're looking at it in terms of some more broad themes, what it teaches us about, about who God is and how he acts on behalf of his people, how he acts ultimately for the glory of his own name. Next week, we'll consider further how it reveals so wonderfully the, the, the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So that's what's before us. All of it, it teaches us just about who is this God, who is this Lord who calls his people not to fear, but to trust him. This evening, I want us to consider three things about who is our God, as revealed in our text this evening. The first is this, that he is the creator and conqueror God, the creator and conqueror God. Let's begin with God as creator. Does, does not this 
event answer so wonders, wonderfully some of those ma- most basic questions, those questions that even some of the youngest children sitting here this evening would be able to answer. I'm speaking to you now, children. I want to ask you a couple of questions. Children, who made you? Answer, children, who made you? God. What else did God make? God made all things. Is that taught in our text? Is it really true, all things? What about even the waters of the Red Sea? And if it's true, how do you know it's true? Well, that's sort of part of the point here. This is, this is part of the wonderful proof. God made all things. Israel's confession, Israel's bold claim was that her God, the Lord, he was the maker and the creator of all. Of course, we've, we've seen already how that's been proven so powerfully in all that God has done in Egypt. We've see, th- seen those themes of decreation, recreation. Israel has become God's new creation. The Lord created all things. And so as we saw in those plagues, he's the one who rules over all things, creation and providence. God rules over all. What have we seen? How he rules over the the waters, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the livestock, the livestock pestilence, the boils, the hail, the locusts. The Lord rules over light and darkness. The Lord rules over life and death. Itself, And we see that theme continuing in our text this evening. Children, how many things could you, if you listen carefully to the story, how many things could you name from this story over which the Lord rules? Does the Lord continue to rule over the water? Here it's the waters of the, the Red Sea. And he rules over the wind which blows, which blew those waters in this text. He rules over the light and darkness ruling over the dark clouds and the blazing fire. We see that he even rules over the hearts of kings. Doesn't Solomon tell us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord? He turns it wherever he will, Proverbs 21, verse 1. So the Lord rules over the kings and the hearts of kings, and he rules over the armies over whom those kings rule. Even rules over their horses and chariots, and even the wheels which, on which those, those chariots ride. He rules over the mud which clogs those wheels, or whatever it was that happened in the story. Some suggest that, that suddenly the wheels just started falling off of the chariots. Whatever happened, it was all the Lord's doing. And again, the Lord is sovereign over life and death. He's the creator and sustainer of life. He takes life uh, as he pleases. Now, I would together these two themes of, of creation and, or creator and conqueror. Well, we see these themes coming together in the Bible, particularly with this Red Sea event in view. A great example is Psalm 89, verse 8, which says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. Rahab is Egypt. The Red Sea victory is what is in view here, and it continues. You scattered your army, your enemies, with your mighty arm. And then there's this clear reference to creation. This is the creator God. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. 
Now, what could give greater confidence to God's people than this reminder that the, that the Lord who would be calling upon them to go and fight, fight battles, to go and fight against great armies, well, what better encouragement than a reminder that, that their God is the very creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who rules over all. And again, to remind them of this, according to, to his wise plan, then God particularly directed them uh, straight up against the, the Red Sea, into the wilderness, to the Red Sea. And he did so such that the first threat which they would face would not be the Philistines, such that in their fear they would seek to look back and, and run back to Egypt as a place of refuge. No, the threat would come from the Egyptians themselves, And the Lord marvelously orchestrates the event such that they would have absolutely nowhere to run, trapped between Egypt and the sea. Nowhere to go but to God. Nowhere to run but to the Lord himself. What a powerful lesson this was. So sad to to, to realize that future generations did not learn this lesson very well, but it should have taught them so well not to trust in anyone, certainly not to trust in Egypt, but to trust only and wholly in the Lord their God. So here Egypt had become the great enemy. Interesting, is it not, to recall how, how Egypt had once kind of saved Israel. In fact, it was the chariots of Egypt that had sort of rescued Jacob out of the famine and carried him off to the place of safety, off to Egypt. Now it was Egypt with her chariots who sought to destroy the people of Israel. What must it have been like for the, the people suddenly to look up and there, there's, there's Pharaoh and his army in hot pursuit. How could this be? In some ways, as I think about the story, I think Pharaoh, we would sort of conceive him as, of him as being kind of like the, the classic monster villain in the superhero movie, right? I mean, you know, the bad guy who it seems like he's just, just impossible to kill. He's a superpower bad guy, and no matter how, time, how many times you kill him, right, just keep blowing his head off, and yet he comes back again and again. We thought Pharaoh had been destroyed, but, but here he is again in full force pursuit. Well, it's Israel's God who's written the script here. Pharaoh would come against him, come against the Lord, really, by coming against his people one more time, and this would be the final victory. And the Lord would do so all on his own. We know, of course, that in future battles, Israel would be called upon to fight. It would always be the Lord's battle. The the battle would belong to the Lord. But he would often be fighting through his people. But you note, in, in, in this instance, the Lord fights not through his people, but for his people, as we see in, in verse 14. What's their part? Only to be silent, right? We see up in verse 13, what were they to do? Nothing but stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see, you shall never see again. Last week, or next week, I think we can return and think about the implications of this for, uh, with respect to what, what role we play in our own salvation. The people here are just witnesses of what God does. They're not participants in the battle. The Bible looks back on this event and sees how the Lord single-handedly gains the victory. It's described as the Lord even slaying the dragon. Isaiah chapter 51, 9 and 10 says, Awake, awake, 
Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And so the Lord indeed showed himself to be the great creator God, the great conqueror God. And then secondly, the second thing we learn about this God is he is is the great, or he is the God who guides and protects his people. Guides and protects. Guidance is another hugely important theme in this passage. We see in the beginning there, chapter 13, 21, and 22, that we're we're introduced for the first time to the, the pillar of cloud and pillar of of fire, we could preach a whole sermon just on the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, which, which, by the way, I believe was was clearly God Himself. This was a what we refer to as a theophany, a, a visible manifestation of God. I think our text makes that clear. If you look at thirteen twenty one, it says, "And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire." to give them light. And as you move over to chapter 14 and look at verse 19, we, we, we see the angel of God. This is the same angel, angel of the Lord, which appeared to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, and that, that flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. This was indeed God, and particularly, I think it's rightly identified, this was, this was God the Son. This was a, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ himself. So in our text in 419, you note that it says in the first part of the verse that, that the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And then it says, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood Behind them, so some suggest, and I, and I agree, the right interpretation of this is to see that that this angel of God, who is God Himself, God the Son, is the pillar of cloud. That is to say, that the second part of verse is sort of a an explanation of the first part of the verse. At any rate, clearly, this was such a marvelous uh, picture of the way that God was right there, present with His people. And this is how God would, as we see, how God continually guided his people, leading them from one place to the next, whether in the form of of a cloud or fire. This likely refers to the very same one pillar. It would change appearance from day to night. We'll see how eventually it will cover the tabernacle, tabernacle where it will remain whenever Israel was to remain in place and whenever they were to set out on a journey the, the, the cloud and pillar would go before them. Guidance and protection. Verse 20 tells us that the Lord was, was coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. So the Lord protects his people. He, he places himself as a barrier between them and their enemies. Just think about this. Think about the fact that there was Israel right in the midst of the, uh, of the sea with the enemies nearby, and yet they were completely safe, completely secure, safe in the presence of their God. I was thinking about this, and it reminded me of years ago, and Sunshine and I were traveling on, on furlough, and we were visiting some friends in, in California. This was a married couple, 
We stayed with them. They were telling us about how they loved to eat at this certain Mexican restaurant, though it was in a bit of a a rough part of town. But they loved the food. They uh, were getting to know the the, the folks who ran it. And so they they saw it as an opportunity to be a witness for Christ there. And so to them, it was was worth taking some risk. And I'll never forget what the, the husband said. He's a guy who sold surfboards and spoke like a surfer and he said you know you're you're there in a dangerous area and yet you feel like you're in a Jesus bubble he meant you know a a bubble of protection bubble of protection not in the not in the new age spirituality sense but but you feel like you're surrounded by the Lord's protection and I thought what a what a what a beautiful picture what an encouraging reminder for us Yes, we live in a dangerous world, and I'm certainly not advocating going out and doing stupid things, but, but brothers and sisters, we are, we are in a Jesus bubble. If we belong to Christ, we are surrounded by the Lord's protection. Has the Lord not promised us, as we were reminded earlier in our affirmation of faith, that not a hair can fall from our head apart from our Father's will? We are, we are immortal until he wills that we should go. And what the Lord was doing for Israel right there in the midst of the sea, it's a, it's a perfect picture of what he does for us in Christ, how we are safe, we are secure in the arms of him, the good shepherd. And he is guiding, protecting and guiding us to a good place, even unto our inheritance, our inheritance, the very fulfillment of what God promised to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's not miss the beautiful fact that when, they, when Israel left Egypt, what was it that they were sure to, to take with them? What was Moses carrying, 1319? The bones of Joseph. Remember how, how Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. How marvelous is that? Egypt had indeed been the place of salvation for Joseph and for Israel, the place where Joseph had attained all of his glory. And yet to think that at his death, it was his deep conviction, Egypt is not my inheritance. My identity is not in Egypt, but with the Lord, the God of Israel, and with people and with the land of of their inheritance. One connection we should make regarding the pillar of cloud and fire is back to that promise which, which God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. In fact, if you'd like to look at this, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. You recall that God made the wonderful promise but then confirmed it by way of his covenant. And so Genesis chapter 15, we read about that great event where the Lord guaranteed that promise through a, through a sort of a covenant ceremony. The Lord had Abraham slaughter sacrificial animals and, and cut them in half and lay each half over against the other. And what was it that God promised? Well, we read in verse 13 of Genesis chapter 15 these words. And the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now, if you jump down to uh, to verse 17, you notice the way the Lord confirmed his covenant promise in such a remarkable way There were these divided animals, and the Lord himself is the one who passed between those animals. 
This is a way of God saying, may it happen to me as it happened to these animals. May I be cut apart, as it were, if I fail to keep my promise. Of course, it's impossible. It could never happen. But that's just the point. God would never break his promise. But God keeps his promise. But how was God present? Look at verse 17. As he was passing through those animal parts, it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. One commentator rightly uh, writes about this, quote, The scene that unfolds before Abraham forms a symbolic enactment of the exodus of Israel led by Yahweh's pillar of fire and cloud. And he references, chapter, references to our very text, chapter 3, 21 and 22. And so this, this, this our, uh, event this event this evening, our passage this evening, so wonderfully looks to the past, but it also looks to the future. Fast forward to the New Testament. Remember what we were told about Joseph in uh, his bones in that marvelous uh, passage on faith, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. It says, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. You note the, the, the beautiful unity of God's people, all of God's people at every point in redemptive history. Joseph himself, though no de- now dead, participating in the exodus, as it were, as his bones were carried off with the people of Israel. We, we all participate, note these. Don't we? All of God's people, all those who are of the faith of Abraham, we all participate in the Exodus. This is our Exodus in that the Exodus was but a type of the Exodus that Christ would accomplish in his death and resurrection. Is not Jesus, as as Hebrews 11 makes clear, Christ is that one who guides us unto our eternal Inheritance, who brings us to the city to which Joseph and, and all of the saints were looking, that city whose builder and maker is God. There's the place where we will dwell safe and secure in the presence of God forever and ever. But in a sense, what we learn here is that, that as we travel on our pilgrim way, we're already there. We're already there in that we are already enjoying the guiding and protective presence of our God. Isn't that true? If Israel enjoyed it in the form of a pillar of cloud and of fire, well, we have something so much greater. We have Christ. We have the spirit of the resurrected Christ, the very spirit that is united to Christ, united us to Christ, the spirit which now lives in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And speaking of glory, Well, that brings us to our last point this evening, briefly, but so importantly, the last thing we learn about this God this evening is that he is the God of glory, the God of glory, the God who is infinitely glorious. What a glorious, broad, and all-encompassing theme, and a huge one in our text, and he does all things for his own glory. How many times are we told the important reason for that that victory over Pharaoh and Egypt. I will get glory. You see it in verse 4. You see it again in, uh, in, in verse 17 and then uh, verse 18. When I have gotten glory 
over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. We also see the repeated statement of the Lord hardening hearts. We've seen this. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Here again, the Lord hardened Pharaoh, hardens Pharaoh's heart. But notice in verse 17 that he hardens the hearts not only of Pharaoh, but of all of the Egyptians. If that seems unfair, we do well this evening to, to remember our doctrine of, of a total depravity as a race of fallen sinners, guilty in Adam. None of us deserve Mercy, God would have been just to, to harden all of our hearts and give us all completely over to perish in our sin. More, more about that next week in terms of what it teaches us about the sovereign grace of our God who shows mercy to whom he will show mercy. But note that the, the chief end for which, for which the Lord gave Pharaoh and Egypt over to their sin, hardening their hearts, was what? It was his own glory. The reason that the Lord alone gained the victory over Pharaoh and over Egypt was, that, was so that he alone might get the glory. All that God does, he does rightly for his own glory. I think our whole passage this evening, again, going back to the, 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 the first catechism, it, it's sort of a marvelous proof text for all, maybe more than this, but particularly the first five questions of that first catechism. Children, who made you? God. What else did God make? God made all things. And why? Why did God make you and all things? For his own glory. We can, we can skip the fourth question for a moment, jump to the fifth, and there we really see God's guidance and his protection. Why are you to glorify God? Because he made me and takes care of me. Good, good. See, God was, was glorified. God was glorified even when he judged and destroyed Pharaoh and his army. But how much more is God glorified in his people, in his blessing his people, in his blessing those who are his new creation in Christ Jesus. But note that he calls us to seek to glorify him precisely because he made us and takes care of us, why does he protect his people? That he might be glorified. And how can we glorify God? There's question four. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. What does he command? Well, this brings us back full circle, doesn't it? To the purpose of the passage. The Lord calls us, the Lord commands us not to fear but to trust, to believe. That's part of our calling is those who have believed the gospel, isn't it? Think about the words of, of the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6. He describes in, in his vision how he, he saw that angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim. And what was the message of that, that gospel-carrying angel? In the very next verse, John writes this. And he, the angel, he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Again, the, the, the great salvation of, of Israel at the Red Sea is but a picture, a, a type of that great salvation which is ours in Christ Jesus. And we'll consider that more next time. But friends, 
if the God who, who created all things, the God who rules over all of his creation, has saved us, and if he has conquered, and if he's promised that he will come again finally to conquer his and, and our enemies, all his and our enemies, and if that God is now guiding us, do, do we believe that this evening? To believe that God is guiding us, our every step is a step upward and onward unto glory. We might feel like it's not the easiest route there, right? We might feel sometimes like we wish we could pull out our smartphone and say, Siri, take me to heaven, and please, take me an easier route, right? But this is the route that God has chosen for his people. If he's guiding us, guiding us in all that happens in our lives, guiding us unto our eternal inheritance to dwell with him forever and ever then what really have we to fear the lord calls us not to fear but to fear with that godly fear the fear of the lord to trust the lord i don't know what what things this evening you might be afraid of or what's causing you fear in your own life but let this passage be a good reminder to you a reminder to all of us Let us learn what Israel was to learn as they they saw those Egyptian corpses floating upon the seashore. Do not fear. Do not fear Pharaoh. Do not fear Egypt. Do not fear any evil power in this world. Instead, trust the Lord. Yes, live in that, that right fear, the godly fear of the Lord for the glory of him who is the maker of heaven and earth. Trust him. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us, your people, to do just that this evening. We, we would say with the psalmist, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear, O Lord God? You who indeed are the maker of heaven and earth and our great deliverer, would you please come to us, we pray, and sanctify us, your people, even by this, your word. Cause your word to be for us a great light, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Guide our steps, O Lord God, in ways that would please you, even as you continue to guide us upward and onward unto our inheritance and glory. Grant, O Lord, that we would walk not in sinful fear, but by that, that faith to which you've called us that we might walk in the way of of the covenant, living in the fear of the Lord. O Lord, do this good work in us by the grace and for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we do pray. Amen.